0: One night in the fall of 1994, I was driving along I-20 from Dallas to Lubbock. Texas is a big place. You can drive straight in any direction for what seems like an eternity and never leave the state. So even road trips between cities in more or less the same region can be a time suck. I'd been at the wheel for several hours when about 30 minutes from Abilene, I pulled over to rest stop to stretch my legs. The place was deserted except for a woman sitting alone in a late 70s Ford Something about her felt off, like she was in trouble. I couldn't quite place it. I did my business, had a quick smoke, and noticing she hadn't moved since I pulled up, decided to see if she needed help. I walked over and knocked on the driver's side window. She was startled at first, but soon explained she had a flat tire with no spare, and that her battery had died while she was waiting for her daughter to come pick her up. When it came out she lived in Abilene, I offered to give her a ride. All at once, she started crying. That would be wonderful she sobbed. We made small talk in the car. I mentioned being in the Air Force, that I was headed for Reese Air Force Base in Lubbock. She was friendly and talkative, but kept casting nervous glances in the mirror. You sure you're okay with me giving you a lift? I finally asked. Oh, it's fine, she said. I'm just glad somebody stopped. The cheerfulness was clearly forced. I figured she was just anxious that her daughter had never shown up. Before long, we made it to her house in a small suburb on the outskirts of town. She thanked me, and getting out of the car, handed me a scrap of paper with her number on it. Call me when you get to Lubbock, she said. I want to make sure you get there okay. I did get there okay later that night, but between finding my unit HQ and getting settled, it would be two weeks before I finally remembered to call. I fished out the scrap of paper from a pile of laundry and dialed. A woman answered. It didn't take long for me to realize she had no idea who I was. I read off the number carefully to confirm i dialed correctly. This was the right one. She sounded too old to be my passenger's daughter, but still I suggested perhaps it had been her mother I'd driven home a couple weeks ago. That wasn't possible, she said. Her mother had died in the 80s. What she said next made my blood run cold. Her mother's car, she told me, had broken down along I-20. She'd managed to make it to a rest stop but met a horrific end while waiting for help. A state trooper investigating what he thought at first glance was an abandoned vehicle found the poor woman's body sprawled out in the back seat. She'd been raped and bludgeoned to death, surviving long enough to leave bloody handprints all over the interior. The murderer had slashed her tires and disconnected her battery. Shocked at hearing this, I described the woman I'd helped, what she'd been wearing, the make and model of her car, etc. The girl on the phone sobbed angrily and demanded I never call again. Several days later, I was ordered to report to my squad commander. The captain leveled a barrage of questions at me. where had I come from? What route had I taken? What time? Next, I was ushered into a briefing room, where a commanding officer waited, and a state trooper. I introduced myself and took a seat. They asked me more or less the same questions as my captain, and added, Why had I called the woman in Abilene? I explained the situation as clearly and concisely as possible. When they'd finished taking notes, the state trooper rose. Well, he sighed, who needs a smoke? Turns out he'd been the one to discover the murdered woman over a decade earlier. The details I'd given her daughter over the phone caught his interest because they were spot on. We still get reports about a stranded woman at that rest stop from time to time, he said. Nothing's there when we show up, of course But, as far as I know You're the first person ever give her a lift Footsteps creeping along the hall at midnight uh-huh. Shadows dancing in the corner of your eye Voices Floating from downstairs after twilight. Big note. Specters moaning from the attic in reply. Everyone has a spooky story, something they don't
1: discuss. But life is a haunted. Territory when you're like us, so... Sit tight,
0: turn on the light, and curl up with some ghoulish history. Something a little dark
1: and dreary, serve with a heaping dose of eerie. Raise those Moscow mules and clink them, whoopsies, ghost. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey.
0: And I'm Michael Tatum. And
1: this... Is cool intentions. Ooh, spooky
0: spooky stuff. So
1: today, first of all, thank you for reading the opening story. You're
0: welcome. I was going to say it's one of my favorite openings I've ever read. It's such a good, like, hardcore, like, really spooky and very believable spin on the phantom hitchhiker, uh, hitchhiker trope. And yeah, um,
1: and we love a phantom hitchhiker.
0: We do. And that—that is. uh, I don't love
1: having one in my car, but. You
0: I, I, I kind of want one in my car just to you have the have experience. Uh, but I'll do it for both of us. That way you don't have to go Thank through you. it. But that Thank is you. from Reddit user WilliamMoney23. and Well, um, I'm glad
1: you got to read it. Yes. Actors so, are fickle. William. Y- <laughs> sometimes they're not dependable. <laughs> and so I'm really glad that that person didn't do it so you could. Uh-huh.
0: We <laughs> asked Ian McShane if he would do it, and he never got back to us. That's right. He us.
1: just refused. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> uh Zeus. play Zeus. Uh, no, um, I just wanna also real about... quick,
0: I wanna say thank you to if William Money oh. twenty three happens to be ever to stumble across this broadcast this broadcast, this podcast, God, I may this have had a broadcast
1: and podcast I may
0: already be one drink, and Jamie, because I'm in the process Ooh. of moving. So it just helps I know. lubricate I know. the move. Um, but I want to say thank you for your service uh, William Money 23 served in the Air Force here in Texas so uh, awesome thank you and uh, good story good story also thank you for being the good person that would help someone in distress even if it gave your world of shit (laughs) yeah Yeah. anyway um, today's episode is thank you for that yes
1: and we um, (laughs) random person online who provides us material who may one day Uh, Yeah. (laughs) yeah so our title today, oh yeah, What's is title? the corner of tragedy and imagination.
0: Oh, it sounds like it sounds like the church I used to go to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, the line is uh, from We Shadows by Tom Quackenbush. That's real. <laughs> that's a, cr- uh, that's and a the, great name. The line is the seed of an urban legend. Find. Fertile soil at the corner of tragedy and imagination.
0: So if you haven't guessed already, today's episode is all about urban legends, but urban legends with a healthy grain of truth to them, if not completely true. Yeah, because if it's one thing I like more than urban legend, it's an urban legend with a real shit fucking story behind it. Like that's I love. I'm like, oh my god, that's a real thing. It's not just someone making shit up to scare Boy Scouts. Holy fuck! And there are
1: actually so many of these that are are. real. We have chosen six that intrigued us.
0: The Um, creme de la creme, if you will. That's right.
1: That's right. So uh, we have those. Do you want to go first? Yes. So
0: I I guess I'm going to just dive us right into the deep end uh, and start with.
1: I know we have like no warm up. (laughs) It's just been three (laughs) minutes. Let's get into this. We're well, okay. So the other thing too is we know what the other one's doing, but we don't know that. We don't know the details, right? Right. So we're selfishly intrigued.
0: (laughs) My first one is a personal favorite: the Bunny Man Bridge. Story, Ooh. which of oh, what course, are your
1: sources? Let's get all of those out of the way.
0: Okay, well, I, I guess it'll be easier if I just give my sources for each particular thing because each each okay. segment will have different sources. But for the Bunnyman Bridge, uh, my primary sources were wa- are were whiz an article <laughs> written whiz. by written by Carrie uh, Carrie Pew for Inside Nova, and. Um, a, a scholarly paper written by historian archivist Brian Conley called The Bunny Man Unmasked. So let me just jump right into it because you guys, it's such a great story. I love it. It's such a, oh, especially maybe because I watched Donnie Darko when it first came out and I loved it. Mm. And so like the Bunny Man bridge story just, it just strikes a chord with me, even though it has no relationship to the movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> At the stroke of midnight on Halloween, a killer in a white rabbit outfit, not unlike an Easter Bunny costume, crouches in the shadows of a railroad overpass in the middle of nowhere. Legend has it, if you say his name three times, he'll make himself known. Just, Bunny <laughs> just Bunny be... Man. Just, you gotta let me finish, Jamie. You gotta oh, be... Pre- just be prepared to run. Are you prepared to run?
1: It's not Halloween. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just be prepared to run, otherwise, he'll slash your throat and leave your eviscerated corpse dangling from the bridge. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone's heard of the Bunny Man bridge story. It's basically about the spirit of an escaped mental patient set to haunt a remote uh, railroad bridge. A remote railroad bridge. That's a new warm-up for me. Hell-bent on avenging the murders of his wife and child. Living in the woods nearby the bridge, the maniac subsists, it's said, on forest critters, mostly rabbits, wearing their skins and leaving their carcasses hanging from the trees to ward off trespassers. One Halloween night, the story goes, driven to the brink by a gang of cruel children, the bunny man killed and mutilated his tormentors, de- decorating the foliage with their entrails. Huh? Ew. Another it's version... It's like
1: Christmas. <laughs> making
0: Christmas, making Christmas. Another version... Intestinal.
1: <laughs>
0: you gotta just go with your gut. Another version... <laughs> <laughs> or someone else's. Another version casts the bunny man as a ghost, the angry revenant of an escaped mental patient. Dressed in an Easter bunny costume, he hurls axes at the cars of young couples parked near the bridge at night. Now, there are... As many versions of the legend as there are people to tell it, all of them equally frightening, making the one-lane tunnel such a popular spot that police have for years had to stake it out every Halloween to chase off thrill-seekers. The bridge was even featured in the reality series Scariest Places on Earth and, of course, (gasps) is all over the Internet.
1: I used to love that
0: show. It's so much fun, right? Now, for good or ill, the tale has put the small town of Clifton, Virginia on the map. Thousands walk the Clifton Haunted Trail every year, whose promotional website, incidentally, features a creepy illustration of the bunny man holding an axe looming in the foreground of the Colchester Road Bridge. But... What's the truth behind the myth, if any? Well, Brian Conley, an an archivist and historian for Fairfax, who works for Fairfax Public Library, has heard the bunny man his whole, has heard of the story his whole life. When he came home from college to work in the municipal library system, the bloody tales seemed to follow him. After locals and tourists alike started asking him whether the tales had any truth to them, he decided it was high time to find out. Well, Not first, it.
1: There's always the person who does the research, and we love those and, people. And his research
0: is pod, just so good. So good. So, Brian Connolly, thank you so much. I hope you listen. First, <laughs> he delved into, fair, into the Fairfax County police records, searching for reports of sensational murders that might have kicked off the story. His findings were compiled into a paper published in December of 2008 and titled The Bunny Man Unmasked: The Real-Life Origins of an Urban Legend. His guiding light, so to speak, was a student thesis written by Patricia Johnson of the University of Maryland in 1973. After exhaustive research, Patricia Johnson concluded that the bunny man legend was just that, a legend. Quote, based on the widespread geographic locations and significant variation represented in the tales, writes Conley, Johnson concluded that the bunny man was an urban belief tale, in short, that the bunny man does not exist. But digging into the Fairfax County Public Library Historical Newspaper Index, Brian found some evidence to refute that conclusion. One incident he stumbled across in the archives seemed to him an excellent candidate for the origin story of the bunny man. So I'm going to quote his paper at length here. Quote, it would be hard to imagine... A more disturbing event for the growing community, like uh, for a growing community like Fairfax, than the gruesome murders of 37-year-old Frances Holliber and her eight-month-old daughter June. On Thursday, February 24th, 1949, Mrs. Hollibur and her daughter drove to Fairfax County in the company of her estranged husband, Charles. All were residents of the District of Columbia. Charles Hollibur later told police that they had come to see the new lodge at a nudist colony to which Mr. Holliber belonged. Ap- I feel like,
1: can I just say this real quick? Please. Don't ever go anywhere with anyone who's you're estranged from.
0: And certainly don't go do to it. a nudist lodge. It's bad
1: idea. It just seems it, it, there's a it's lot a red of red flag.
0: I feel like if he was taking them to a nudist lodge, it was already like, we talked about this. This is why we broke it off. Anyway. Upon leaving the lodge, the car became mired in some mud. The couple quarreled, and Mrs. Hobbler took the child and walked away from her husband and never returned. Charles Hobbler spent the night in the car and got a ride back to Washington the next day. He returned with his brother-in-law and a friend to retrieve the car. Still finding no evidence of his family, the police were finally notified. An intensive search of the area was organized involving Fairfax County Police, Washington Detectives, and Boy Scouts. About... 5 p.m., just as the searchers were going to give up for the night, one of the detectives noted that the ground on which they were standing was very soft. Both mother and daughter were found in a shallow grave next to the lodge and less than 200 yards from where Hobbler's car had been stuck. Francis Hobbler had been been beaten and then shot once in the head and once in the heart. The baby girl... Mm have been buried alive.
1: Oh, my God.
0: The local community was shocked and horrified by the cold, brutal character of the crime, especially when the investigation identified Charles Hobbler as the prime suspect. Hobbler later confessed to investigators that he had planned the murder for three weeks and had not intended to report the disappearance of his wife, but changed his mind when the car got stuck in the mud. In other words, he needed a good cover story.
1: Yeah, but he still waited until the next fucking day. Like, you're going to leave your baby on a road with your wife. Your
0: eight-month-old daughter. Uh, the case came to trial in January of two thousand fifty. Uh, excuse me, 1950, 2050. It's still awaiting trial. The legal system is just so backed up. Uh, sorry. The case came to trial on January 16th, 1950. After hearing four days of testimony, the jury returned a verdict of guilty and Hobbler was sentenced to death by electric chair. Hobbler's attorney, T. Brooke Howard, filed an appeal alleging that the jury failed to give proper consideration to the plea of insanity and that the court made errors in its instruction to the jury. The Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals eventually overturned the conviction and ordered a new trial. Charles Francis Hobbler was readmitted, recommitted to the Western State Mental Hospital at, at Marion, Virginia, where he was judged to be insane. It is interesting yeah. to note that this was the first time since the Ridgeway murder trial of 1927 in which a Fairfax County jury invoked the death penalty. Now, as far as origin stories of, like, what sensational murder might have made that area um, uh, uh, space rife with urban legend, so far so good. But where did the bunny costume element come from? Well, Brian Connolly searched for any evidence of a man dressed in a rabbit costume terrorizing people in the Washington region. He hit paydirt in an issue of the Washington Post dated October 22nd 1970. The headline read, Man in Bunny Suit Sought in Fairfax. The story detailed the harrowing experience of an Air Force cadet who went parking with a girl on Guinea Road in Fairfax. For those of you too young to know what parking means, because I'm almost too young to know what parking means, it means fucking in a car. Um,
1: or making out.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you're a Could pussy, just no. <laughs>
1: kissing.
0: No, that's called necking. Parking is fucking. It's just, you know, they they weren't allowed to swear. You had to use euphemisms. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, from the article itself, quote, Fairfax County police said yesterday that they are looking for a man who likes to wear a, quote, white rabbit bunny costume and throw hatchets through car windows. <laughs> What an opener. Air Force Academy cadet Robert Bennett told police that shortly after midnight last Sunday, he and his fiancée were sitting in a car in the 5400 block of Guinea Road when a man, dressed in a white suit with long, bunny ears, ran from the nearby bushes and shouted, You're on private property and I have your tag number. The... (laughs) Rabbit threw a wooden-handled hatchet through the right front car window, the first cadet told police. As soon as he threw the hatchet, the rabbit skipped off into the night, police said. Bennett and his fiancée were luckily not injured. Police say they have the hatchet, but no other clues in the case. They say Bennett was visiting an uncle who lives across the street from the spot where the car was parked, and they were fucking. That's my own addition. The cadet (laughs) was in the area to attend last weekend's Air Force-Navy football game. And to get late. The bunny man. <laughs> <laughs> now, the bunny man made another appearance, according to the Post, on October 30th, 1970, just a few days later. Neighbors on Guinea Road reported seeing a man in a bunny suit hacking away at a house under construction with a hatchet confronted by a security guard the bunny man ran off from the article quote a man wearing a furry rabbit suit with two long ears appeared again on guinea road in fairfax county thursday night police reported this time wielding an axe and chopping away at a roof support on a new house less than two weeks ago a man wearing that Uh, Wearing what was described as a rabbit suit accused two persons in a parked car of trespassing and heaved a hatchet through a closed window of the car at uh, 5400 Guinea Road. They were not hurt. Thursday night's rabbit... (laughs) I love that. Thursday night's rabbit. (laughs) Let's see. That's a great Reddit name. Uh, That's or a
1: band name.
0: Right? (laughs) Thursday night's rabbit, wearing a suit described as gray, black, and white, was spotted a block away at 5307 Guinea Road. Paul Phillips, a private security guard for a construction company, said he saw the rabbit standing on a front porch of a new but unoccupied house. I started talking to him, Phillips said, and that's when he started chopping. All you people trespass around here, Philip said, the rabbit told him as he, as he whacked gashes into the pole. If you don't get out of here, I'm going to bust you in the head. Philip said he walked back to his car to get his handgun, but the rabbit, carrying the long-handled axe, had run off by the time he got back. The security <laughs> guard said the man was about five foot eight, 160 pounds, and appeared to be in his early 20s. Police investigated, but found no evidence, and after several weeks, the case was filed away into obscurity, as so often happens with shit of this kind. But Conley writes, So who was the Bunny Man, or who the Bunny Man was and what motivated him to act in such a bizarre manner is still a mystery. However, he says, the available evidence points to the October 1970 events as the genesis of the Bunny Man legend. Many of the tales collected by Patricia Johnson in 1973 clearly derive from the events as reported in the newspaper and the television. Television news of that period. The official police reports make no mention of any pre-existing stories that this individual could have been copying. Furthermore, William J. Johnson, uh, another scholar, specifically stated to the author uh, that he found no indications of any earlier stories or criminal incidents involving an individual dressed as a rabbit. It is also plainly evident that the story began to take on the features of an urban legend quite soon after the events were reported. Investigator Johnson was following leads generated by schoolyard rumors less than two weeks after the first appearance of the Bunny Man, and by the time Patricia Johnson began her work two and a half years later, the story had mutated in location, frequency, and severity. Brian's research has uncovered some truth in a story that has become part of the area's folklore, but... Its creepy reputation continues with mounting evidence. As recently as April 2018, an unidentified man was found dead, the victim of a still unsolved homicide about 900 feet from the Colchester Bridge.
1: So, yeah. That's a great place to, like, just generally murder someone because everybody's going to blame the bunny man.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. But yeah, but yeah, the, the, so apart from like this horrible murder that took place in Fairfax County, and there were others cited in the the paper that Connolly wrote, um, that kind of got people talking about that area as, as kind of an evil place. And then someone really was going around, decided at least on two occasions that reported in the news in the 70s of some dude in a rabbit suit with a fucking axe. Yeah. So it's not complete fiction people have seen yeah. a crazy dude and if he and if he, he was in his 20s as the security card descri- described him in 1970 uh then he's could still very well be around yeah <laughs> and out there and in a, a bunny suit he's probably let it out a little bit um right uh, but just know,
1: like making appearances here and there to scare the kids
0: yeah just for special like you know he's a well, lega- if he's, he's a not, legacy character now so he yeah. just makes special appearances <laughs>
1: Yeah. If he's not though, that doesn't mean somebody else isn't out there.
0: It could be like you the know. Dread Pirate Roberts. It's like, that's you know, right. he he you pa- or Zorro, you pass on the, the mantle man. of the Bunny Man to the next yeah. willing and maybe that's <laughs> I love I want that to be true. I want that to be true. Yeah. But yeah, so that yeah. that in short is the Bunny Man, uh the Bunny Man bridge the truth, the all too uh, accurate uh, legend of the Bunny Man Bridge. What have you got for us next?
1: Well, my first well, let me give you all these are all of my sources. <laughs> so Uh-oh. this is for the all three. All of So them. we've got an article on Rancor by Amanda sedluck Heavener, an article on the New York Post by Maureen Callahan, Snopes, and Wikipedia.
0: Nice. Snopes is so yes. great.
1: Um so here we go.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My first one. Yes. Is the legend. Of Cropsey. Oh, God,
0: I fucking love this
1: one. It's good. Okay, and so who is Cropsey? Let's talk about that first. In the 1980s, parents on Staten Island started telling their children that the mythical boogeyman, Cropsey, was going to get them if they misbehaved. He was described as an escaped mental patient with a hook for a hand who would kidnap young children and drag them back to his insane asylum at night. According to the urban legend... Cropsey haunted the underground tunnels of Staten Island's Seaview Hospital. The abandoned ruins of Seaview were a creepy wooded landmark most children on Staten Island would have known to avoid or sneak in, because obviously.
0: Oh, fuck (laughs) yeah. I mean. (laughs) Um,
1: And there were stories of people going out there and seeing someone, and there were children who disappeared. So uh, they were, the parents definitely. Would use that as the the boogeyman to keep them mm-hmm. from misbehaving, but what's the truth? Mm. Well, first, let me recommend everyone watch the Cropsey documentary that came out in two thousand nine.
0: Oh, it's so fucking <laughs> it's good! It's one of it's one of my favorite creepy documentaries ever. Yeah.
1: It's really, really good, and gives a nice, thorough telling of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, more thorough than I can cover. And, right and now, from the perspective, because
0: sure. the filmmakers were locals who grew up with the legend, so it was very That's personal. What I was for just them. about to say. They oh, grew up being
1: afraid of. Uh, they grew up being afraid. let you knew. Talk. <laughs> yeah, they had heard about it. They knew people who had seen someone in the woods, stuff like that. So they knew to be to scared, and just like uh, your guy in the other story, they decided they were going to uncover the truth. And so they got into it, but. The truth is, Cropsey wasn't an escaped mental patient at all. The real Cropsey, Andre Rand, was on staff at the Willowbrook State Hospital. Willowbrook had a nightmarish history filled with Mm. overcrowding and cruel treatment. Children at the hospital were kept in cages, mentally ill and malnourished patients roamed the floors, and some patients were subjected to cruel experiments. When people talk about the worst of the worst of Asylum's, this is one of those asylums
0: yeah it's awful. Um, it's just it's fucking one of awful. the only
1: decent things i think heraldo rivero has ever done in my opinion yeah, <laughs> is uh he did a special on this and brought attention to it which eventually led to it being closed because people could see how horrible it is um and that's also a good documentary but just horrifying um as, as well Mm. Uh, or a good story that he did you can see that too.
0: Yeah, um, yeah yeah its
1: doors were shut for good in 1987 the same year rand was arrested after being publicly exposed rand born frank russian on march 11th 1944 is responsible for the kidnapping and murder of at least two young girls in the 1980s but may have been killing unknown victims a decade earlier The Cropsey legend paints the creepy picture of an evil man with a hooked hand and a bloody axe. While Rand wasn't quite as terrifying in person, he was most certainly evil as fuck. He started Mm. living Mm. and working at Willowbrook as a janitor way back in 1966. Mm. But he only stayed there for a little over a year. His employment ended in 1968. Now, having seen pictures of that hellish place... I imagine they were like, you know what we don't need for the next 20 years? A janitor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> it was they were like, disgusting. why?
0: Why the overhead? Like, like who cares? I mean, that's yeah. and it's sad. Like the filth those poor people oh, God, were expected disgusting. to live in is just, I mean, makes me homicidally angry at the yeah. administrators. It's yeah. just unconscionable.
1: Yeah. So for whatever reason, after only one year, this asshole was still very much attached to the asylum. The following year, he was arrested for attempting to rape a young girl. Despite no longer working for Willowbrook, Rand camped out there after the institution closed in night, until after the institution closed in 1987, or after. Sorry, um, and even buried one of his victims, Jennifer Schwager, who we'll talk about in a minute, on the grounds. In 1979, Rand was accused of raping an adult woman and a 15-year-old girl. Neither of the unnamed females pressed charges, though, so Rand effectively got away with it. Had he been convicted, there's a decent chance he Mm. would have been in prison during the 1980s, and all of those missing Staten Island children may never have gone missing.
0: Oh, it's so sad.
1: Yeah. It's so sad. Missing children? Let's talk about them. In 1972, five-year-old Alice Pereira vanished after her brother had left left her alone for a moment. They were playing in the lobby of a building on the island. Reports also suggest Alice might have been sighted in one of the parks. Rand was the prime suspect in this case due to his previous criminal record. Alice was never seen again. Uh. In 1981, seven-year-old Holly Ann Hughes did not return home after going to the store to get a bar of soap with her friend. Andre Rand pulled up to Holly and her friend and pulled Holly into his Volkswagen and drove off with her. Her parents filed a missing persons report and a search was issued. When questioned, several eyewitnesses reported seeing Hughes with Rand. The last time anyone saw her, she was with him. Holly is one of the victims. Rand was convicted of kidnapping. In 1983, 11-year-old Tia Heese Jackson was reported missing after her mother had sent her to purchase food, and she did not return. She was last seen exiting the Mariner's Harbor Motel in Staten Island on August 14, 12 days after Rand was released from prison. He was questioned, but no charges were brought.
0: Mm.
1: Also in 1983, and this is just fucking weird, Mm. he picked up 11 kids in a school bus. The The children were at the Staten Island YMCA when Rand appeared. Rather than return them to their homes, he instead took them on a day-long adventure that involved eating fast food from White Castle and traveling to the Newark Airport to watch the planes land. That's Rand so. Rand was charged with unlawful imprisonment for the strange trip, but he only spent ten months in prison.
0: It's so fucked up. It's so fucked up with that history. Like I and yeah. that. Oh God. Oh. In
1: 1984. Staten Island resident Hank Gafforio was reported missing after he did not return home one night. Gafforio was described as being slow and had an IQ in the 70s. Mm. At the time of his disappearance, he was 22. Eyewitnesses reported last seeing Gafforio in a local diner with Rand in the early morning hours. His body has never been found. Mm. Oh. In 1987, Jennifer Schwager, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. was reported missing on July 9th. Witnesses spotted Jennifer, who had Down syndrome, walking with rand her body was found after a 35-day search while combing the area around willowbrook a particular spot caught the eye of retired new york city firefighter george kramer he returned with police and the entire body was unearthed from the shallow grave and the remains were positively identified as those of jennifer police searched the grounds for evidence and found one of rand's makeshift campsites in proximity to her grave In Cropsey, the filmmakers interviewed a homeless man who lived in the abandoned underground tunnels of Willowbrook that were once used for transporting supplies and patients. He said that Rand had a cult leader-like following among other tunnel dwellers. It's believed he may have used his influence to get other people staying there to assist him, kidnapping children, abusing them, or hiding their bodies. Some of those homeless were most likely mentally disabled, though, so there's a reason to believe Rand sought them out on purpose because he knew he could manipulate them. In Ah. 1988, Andre Rand was charged with the kidnapping and first-degree murder of Jennifer Schweiger. The Staten Island jury could not reach a verdict on the murder charge, but they did convict him on the first-degree kidnapping charge. He was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison and would have been eligible for parole in 2008 had he not been convicted of kidnapping Holly Ann Hughes Hmm. in 2004. So that conviction was only possible because there is no statute of limitations in New York for first-degree kidnapping. Thank God. Yeah. He was sentenced to another consecutive 25 years to life in prison, so he will not become eligible for parole until 2037, Hmm. when he will be 93 years old. Hmm. Mm. On Mother's Day, 2011, Rand sent out a creepy letter from prison. In it, he wished all the ladies on Staten Island who supported prosecutorial vindictiveness against an innocent person a happy Mother's Day. He went on to say that if he could afford to, he would give them seeds to plant rose bushes in honor of his forgiveness.
0: Jesus, what? Like I said, a, what yeah. a piece of shit. He's a fucking shit. monster. Fucking, He's evil. Oh God. Oh. Yeah. Oh, the fact that, so he that he preyed on, the true and, story and the fact of that a number of the homeless people he that he kind of you know enveloped into his cult or whatever were probably. Uh, People that were turned out of the insane asylum when it was closed down that had nowhere yep. else to go, yep. and that and he knew them already or knew like oh, it's yeah. fuck it. it's like he only worked at the an insane asylum to to get in touch with the just the perfect mark for people to help yeah. him with this bullshit. Like, and what that's one of the things they get monster. into
1: in the Cropsy documentary mm-hmm. is that when they shut down, you know, the insane the asylum. I Was say insane asylum, <laughs> and the, when they shut it down, a lot of those people had nowhere to go. They yeah. just kind of were like, "Bye." Yeah. So,
0: I mean, they, they didn't but, have families um, or whatever. Like, and that's that's sad. But he was like, also
1: arrested when it was shut down. So, you know.
0: Yeah. Uh, but
1: but yeah, definitely. definitely yeah, it's it's the, a really like, good
0: documentary. documentary. Um, yeah, they made another one too about urban legends uh, that they and they they address a, a handful. of yeah, that's right. so It's really it's uh, it's called Killer Legends. Also really good. They made it a few years later and uh, also really good. But Cropsey is by far their crown jewel. Yeah. Um. Whew, that was good. All right, so I'm uh, going to take us into the next story, which is uh, Charlie No Face, also known as the Green Man. Uh, I had never heard of this one until the internet. Until YouTube, and I was like, oh, crazy. But if you had grown up in Western Pennsylvania in the 50s and 60s, chances are you'd heard of the Green Man, um, a horrifying entity without a face who supposedly stalks the remote streets in the dead of night. What you may not know, however, is that the Green Man, also known as Charlie No-Face because of his primary feature or lack thereof, was in fact a real person, a guy named Raymond Robinson. Does I should grin? say that my face, uh, yeah. So um, uh, this uh, my primary source for this story is from an article written I, uh, from All That's Interesting is the name of the site, mm-hmm. and it's really good. Unfortunately, this article, as well-researched as it was, uh, had no byline. So whoever wrote it, thank you. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> it's really good. I appreciate it. Uh, now, the legend of the green man states that he glows green as a result of being struck by lightning or perhaps shocked in some kind of a horrific industrial accident. He's also said to haunt South Park not the show, <laughs> uh, the real place, or the North Hills uh, or the many country lanes in and around Washington, Pennsylvania. Quote, the legend goes that he roams that hollow uh, lane at uh, that he uh, roams that hollow late at night and chases the Parkers and Loafers, says Mary Werner, an, a, an Elizabeth Township native who grew up in Pennsylvania in the 60s. Though the part about him deliberately chasing or scaring people is a fabrication, the legend is otherwise Entirely factual. In 1919, when Raymond Robinson was eight years old, he was reaching for a bird's nest at the top of an electric pole when he received an 11,000 volt shock and was sent flying to the ground in a blinding flash. The voltage burnt his face and arms, leaving holes where his eyes and nose had once been.
1: Oh my god!
0: He survived! How? Um, i fucking just I mean, who knows, but he survived, and despite the the horrific injury, reports at the time noted that uh, Raymond was in good spirits that he could still hear and talk and respond um. So he lived out his life in Capel, Pennsylvania for the next 65 years. Now, he sequestered himself away in the family home, mostly eking out a living by selling handmade belts, wallets, and the occasional doormat. Now, he would take his exercise in the wee hours so as not to scare people, uh, walking along the lonely lanes while the world slept. It was from these nightly constitutionals that the legend of the green man grew. High school could kids.
1: He, could he see? He didn't, couldn't see. No,
0: he's blind. He's blind.
1: So he just uh, go out and walk by himself and,
0: and know it. I mean, you know, you can get around. Okay. Blind people get around, you know, especially if you know the I area. Guess, yeah. um, high school I have kids have
1: concerns with the woods.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right to be concerned, but he seemed <laughs> to be able to take care of himself. Um, yeah, well, high school kids out to beat the night would spot him from their car, ambling alongside State Route 351. And it's likely that the name Green Man came from the effect of headlights on Robertson's charistic flannel shirt. One Capel resident of the time remembers seeing him on her way back to town from a swimming hole down the road. I was so scared it was unreal, she recalls. Though some people were frightful or cruel to him, others befriended Raymond, offering him a cold beer or a fresh cigarette as he passed by. Quote, we used to go out and give him beer, said then 60 year old Pete Pavlov, uh, Pavlovic in a 1998 interview with the Post-Gazette. He stated that people would often meet at the diner where he worked before heading out to try and spot the green man, which kind of become a local custom. People who didn't know about Robinson were often shocked and terrified at the sight of him. Quote, they wanted to call the police. You'd have to explain. Then they'd usually go back looking for him. <laughs> uh-huh. For Now for a laugh, assholes would occasionally give Raymond a ride only to drop him off somewhere unfamiliar fucking dicks mm. i hope they burn in hell hell of a yeah. nice guy said phil ortega a coppell native and schoolmate of robinson's sister in the same interview ortega remembered bringing his dates to see robinson and bring him lucky strike cigarettes little is known <laughs> about robinson's life other than he lived a fairly solitary one he died of natural causes in 1985 at the age of 74 and though he may be gone the legend of the green man and charlie no face are as alive today as ever. You can find pictures of Raymond online, and it's it's very sad. I mean, once you know his story, you're like, oh, that poor that poor guy. But yeah. I I mean, in fairness, of the people who who had never heard of him before and encountered this guy, walking along the roadside at night, it, it his 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 lack of a face is very unnerving. I'm sorry.
1: Right, I would you imagine. Know, and it sounds
0: like it sounds like I guess. I mean, I don't know his mind. I, it sounds like it was actually pretty awful for him to deal with that his entire life. But you, bet. you know, it's why he chose to walk around at night. But part of me wants him and hopes that he took just a little bit of ghoulish pride in scaring the shit out of people and yeah. being a legend. Like I mean. God, if, you, if you have it flaunted, it. but yeah, but the story of the Green Man—at uh, uh, least, I mean, there are many, many versions of a Green Man story in other parts of the world. But the the Green Man of of that region of Washington State is uh, true, true, one hundred percent true. That he was visible until until the eighties.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you want to take a? Since we're three in, do you want yeah, to take, qu- take a break. T- quick break to refresh our okay. drinks? Yes. All right.
1: Happy Halloween.
0: Happy Halloween, ghoulish so, listeners. we
1: have a Halloween event coming up that we want to tell you about. It weedle, is weedle. on Halloween, yes. the 31st of October, this year, 2020. It is, uh, we, we're not able to do what we normally do, which yeah. is the stew and the ghost stories. But yeah. we are teamed up with Color World, Color World Live and we will be doing a panel that everybody has access to if you wanna come watch us chat. We'll have some guests on. It'll be a lot of fun and you can join in. We also will have some items for purchase. You can get um, one-on-one chats with us. You can get, I guess, one-on-two chats with us too. Yeah. Um, Yeah, There will be voice messages, autographs, New merchandise. New Google Intent so merchandise. Things. So many things. So many things. So Color many World
0: things. couldn't make it easier. It's awesome. That's
1: right. That's right. Um, so you can Google Color World live and and their information will come up. But you can also follow us on Twitter, of course, Google Intent. <laughs> and we will certainly let you know uh, the links of where you can go watch it. If you are a Patreon member, you will be able to not only watch but ask questions. Mm-hmm. And you'll get 5%, 20%, or up to 50% of of a discount code available depending upon what tier you are. So if you were thinking about joining, this is a great time to join our Patreon. (laughs) So we're really excited about Halloween. We hope to see some of you guys there. Anything else, Michael?
0: Uh, I can't wait. I think it's a really, really good uh, answer for us not being able to do the normal Halloween thing this year. This is even better in some ways. So please join us, and we look forward to seeing you there and hearing some of you as well. We're Halloween! Halloween!
1: And we're back.
0: We are. Here
1: with more urban legends to terrify you at night.
0: Because they're real. Because they're
1: real. Or just like creepy. Or maybe not creepy, but strange. That's mine. My next one. Mm-hmm. And that is the main Hermit. By that, I don't mean like the number one hermit. <laughs> I mean <laughs> <Like>. the hermit... <laughs> From the state of Maine.
0: <laughs> I kind of yeah. want to, I mean, he could be the Maine hermit.
1: He he is kind and of a good, he's... he's kind of a number one hermit. So, <laughs> for nearly 30 years, the North Pond hermit was the Loch Ness Monster of rural Maine. Not only was it local lore, it was a point of a kind of perverse local pride amongst the community. To the victims, though, the North Pol- the North Pond hermit was terrifying and not to be trifled with. Oh. The Hermit, also known as the Mountain Man and the Hungry Man, was believed responsible for decades of break-ins in North Pond cabins. Shit. These crimes had a pattern, spiking before Memorial Day and after Labor Day, and the items stolen ranged from batteries to packaged foods to skillets to paperback novels. The hermit loved back issues of National Geographic and Playboy (laughs) and preferred Bud to Bud Light, peanut butter over tuna.
0: My grandfather used to say that the writing in Playboy was just so great.
1: So good. (laughs) (laughs) It's for the plot. He rarely stole anything of real value, save for the couple who returned for the summer to find a mattress stolen from a bunk bed. The passports they'd stashed in it were left in view in a closet. If the hermit had to remove a door from its hinges to get in, he'd reattach it before leaving. He'd never break a window to gain entry, never rifle through belongings, always leave a cabin as clean as he found it. When the local police made their reports, they filed the suspect's name as Hermit Hermit. (laughs) (laughs) One noted a crime scene's unusual (laughs) neatness, and even law enforcement had to give him credit. By the early 20-teens, people had started installing alarm systems, surveillance cameras, and Sergeant Terry Hughes even added motion sensors and floodlights at the Pine Tree Summer Camp. Hmm. Hughes had the silent alarm wired to go off at his home. And on one early morning of April of 2011, the alarm went off. Uh-oh. He headed that way, prepared to, uh, prepared to encounter a military veteran or a hardened criminal and was surprised to find himself face-to-face with a pale, bespectacled man, clean-shaven and well-dressed in a Columbia jacket, new jeans, quality work boots. He was six feet tall and well-fed. He had found the elusive North Pond Hermit. I mean, he sounds a lot cleaner
0: than I was expecting.
1: Right, exactly. His name was Christopher Knight, and he had disappeared in 1986 at age 20. By his own account, Knight went twenty-seven years without ever talking to another human being.
0: God. Sometimes I wish that was me.
1: You're gonna love this story.
0: I love it already.
1: Yeah. Knight grew up in the tiny village of Albion, Maine where cows outnumber people by half. He was the youngest of five in a family of brainiacs who lived off the land. Their father studied thermodynamics and built a greenhouse that fed the family through all seasons. Oh my god! His parents I weren't affectionate. What? I oh yeah, you are on board. I fucking, am already,
0: yeah. I'm already getting hard.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> His parents were not affectionate with the children, and Knight said his family was obsessed with privacy. His father taught him to hunt, and he took a course in survivalism. Shortly after graduating high school, he took what little money he had and drove his 1985 Subaru Subaru Brat or Brat, I don't know, all the way up to to Moosehead Lake.
0: Subaru Brat, brat. brat. Subaru Scamp. Um,
1: Uh, He took it all the way up to Moosehead Lake, one of the most remote places in Maine. Mm. Once there, it was like the decision had been made for him. He knew what he was going to do, but told no one, not even his mother. His family never filed a missing persons report. They just assumed Knight (laughs) went off on an adventure. When his father died 15 years after Knight vanished, he's still listed as a survivor. Wow. On the obituary.
0: That now that is a family that respects privacy. Like, don't it's call true. the police. It's probably you know,
1: that's to come home. yeah. <laughs> uh, that can backfire on you.
0: But I mean, he it's, does, <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. He doesn't know why he went off to live on his own. He didn't have anything to hide or run away from. He just did it.
0: Sometimes that's you just, what he said. I sometimes just Sometimes you it. just want to. I can I can understand that. I feel one day. Yeah. One day, especially as I get older, especially, um, uh, and because there were times I even felt this when I was his age, um, yeah. where I would just like, I could go to some remote locale for a couple of days to go camp and be like, why
1: why go back?
0: Let's just yeah. stay here. I don't know. I, I get the draw of solitude. I really do. Yes. And, and I, I, yeah. Just,
1: <laughs> All through this, I was like, this is kind of Michael's dream. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. At night... Um, Let's see. Knight found a clearing in the woods, set up a tent, and devoted himself to stoicism. His camp was within a mile of summer cabins built in a well-drained woodland obscured with a cluster of glacial erratic boulders. So we had a really good hiding spot, basically.
0: That's another great band named <laughs>
1: Yeah, Glacial, Glacial Erratic, Erratic Boulders. Boulders. <laughs> having, in- <laughs> having entered the woods with almost no possessions, the camp was composed entirely of items stolen from nearby cabins and camps. He survived by committing approximately 1,000 burglaries against houses in the area at a rate of approximately 40 per year. To be able to survive these crime sprees were before and after holidays and he considered them his harvest time he gained weight before the harsh winters by gorging on booze and sugary junk food he stole barbecue tanks to melt snow for drinking water he'd hunker down in his little lair for six months october through april to avoid leaving any footprints in the snow god damn He had a two-burner camp stove, a gas line, a wash area, a bathroom consisting of two logs and a hole in the ground, and a bed with a fitted sheet and Tommy Hilfiger pillowcases. His coolers and garbage cans were painted in camouflage. He spent his days eating, cleaning, and thinking, and his nights, breaking and entering.
0: Can you imagine? I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't, well, I don't want to judge him for the breaking and entering because it feels like, you know, he's not doing that much damage. You know, he's just stealing things that people generally don't miss and just it's more so much that they feel violated than that he's that he's deprived them of something they can't live without. But other than that, we just focus for a moment on the way he lived. Man, can you imagine that motherfucker's inner life, like just the thoughts he could have because he was so free of distractions? I yeah. cannot. I envy the shit out of that. Like, god damn it! Did he did he leave a written record? Did he write shit down, or was he just totally life of the mind type of guy?
1: He's just life of the mind. He read a lot, god, stuff like that. Fuck him. Um, he also I, would only allow himself to, to sleep like six and a half hours at night. I already do that. I already, afraid. I'm
0: already there. I'm already there, yeah. Jamie. I should yeah. be living in the fucking woods, <laughs> I, it's, and it's just uh, coming out to do this podcast once or twice a week.
1: Right. Um, just get into some good Wi-Fi. Go steal someone's Wi-Fi. You'll be fine. I'll get a hotspot. Um, I'll get a
0: I'll get a mobile hotspot, <laughs> and that way be great. you'll yeah. no one will ever know where I'm actually reporting from.
1: <laughs> God, that's ah, so oh, you're a, giving me so a, many just ideas. Just for everybody else, the the sleeping thing was because if you sleep longer than that, you have a chance of uh, sweating and freezing and and dying from just the sweat freezing. So there's just. I yeah, mean, clearly, a to survive
0: is, the way he did for so long, he knew what the fuck he was doing. Yeah, like he did. mad he respect. Did.
1: Uh he now he knew what he was doing. The stealing was wrong. He did know that. He never yeah. wanted to steal. But hunger has a way of adjusting one's moral misgivings. Mm-hmm. He stole from one couple, though, over fifty times. <laughs> they thought it was one of their kids at first. <laughs> then they thought they were going crazy. But there was two of them. <laughs> Un- like he, unfortunately, Did he, did he pick on them night. particularly?
0: Because he's like, I just don't like this. They're fucking assholes. I'm going to rip them yeah. off more than anyone else. I like, think they just, maybe my- they just
1: made it easy. Because, too, remember, this was a campsite. So during the winter, people would go away. Right, right. And so, you know, they weren't there all the time. He hmm. could go in and steal little things, and maybe they wouldn't you know, wouldn't remember it or something like that. Right, or they just think they'd lock it. But he certainly it. knew he was going to the same places, so he would know if they were gonna be there, I'm sure. He would know <laughs> He's like, how to get in. He's never leave their shit unlocked.
0: I've been ripping them off for years and they still haven't yeah, learned. Yeah, you'd
1: think they'd lock a door, but no. <laughs> um, other residents, this part's fun too. The other residents would leave food out for him, but he never took their offerings because he was afraid it was poisoned. Other people Uh, would sit on their front porches with guns waiting for him because they were going to catch the hermit, right? (laughs) So it was kind of this also stalking thing. They wanted to find out where he was because it was this lore is he even real. This is so great. uh, Yeah, and it was him. It was him. He mostly read, like I said. However, he emerged with no grand epiphany, no guiding philosophy. He longed solely for all the quiet I can take, consume, eat, dine upon, savor, relish. Feast. And I get that.
0: Take note, all that. of you, everyone out there. This man lived in the fucking woods and didn't talk to another person for 27 years. Yeah. And his vocabulary is that good. You have no excuse. That's
1: right. That's right. I mean, he did just read the whole time, though. So, uh, After spending seven months in jail and paying a $1,500 fine, he moved back in with his mother for a while. And his brother gave him a job at his scrap metal recycling plant. He now lives on his own and works in an auto shop.
0: Oh God, I want. God, I'd love to interview him, but I don't want to. I don't want to. If he ever submitted to an interview, I'd lose respect for him. So I, I, you know what I mean. I'm torn. I want to interview him, but then I don't want to tempt him to like ruin my my fantasy of who he is.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I get that. I totally get that.
0: God, I know. (sighs) I know you hate the woods. I know you hate the woods, but we just imagine this the beautiful, just soul opening solitude.
1: <laughs> and I mean that sounds great. And it's uh, and you know, I don't approve of stealing, but it sounds around... like
0: a fun pastime for him. So like, you know, having to figure it out was, you know, kept him occupied. So it's like he That's was never true. at a loss for entertainment.
1: But he also sla- slept on an old mattress and he had to sleep in a bunch of different sleeping bags on the floor of the woods.
0: Yeah, that's not your. And that's bag. where you lose me. That's literally like, not why your can't
1: bag. we be isolated in like five stars? You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> five star isolation. It's
0: hard to be isolated when there's room service.
1: Right. Okay, isolated except room service, but like nobody talks to you when they bring it in. <laughs> and you order it online.
0: That's called that's called being a celebrity.
1: <laughs> Fuck. We are not doing this shit, right?
0: We're really not, Jamie. We're really not. That's what to do.
1: <laughs> it's not that I don't that I think I'm better than anybody. I just don't want to talk to anybody.
0: Yeah, I don't, it's, I don't want to talk to people because I know I'm not better than them. <laughs> 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 I'm intimidated. I need time away from the remi- constant you reminder. You me to be
1: interesting? It's not <laughs> I'm gonna like, I happen. just can't
0: do it. I want to go in the woods. I can compete with some trees. I can't compete with real people. Yeah. Oh, right. God. That was great. I fucking love that. I love yeah. that. Mm. And I realize I'm probably romanticizing it. But to be fair, so was he and he succeeded. Yeah. and It uh, worked.
1: 7 months <laughs> in jail, $1500 fine for 1000 1, burglarings.
0: burglarings. <laughs> God, Stilings. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um okay, well I'm going to take us back into the dark side.
1: Yeah, we're gonna finish. We're gonna, we're
0: gonna, yeah. Oh, good. That seems appropriate. I mean, it's October. Yeah, just like
1: a little, a hump in the middle of. Oh, isn't this fun? A little little bit of comic relief, if you will. (laughs) Drop it.
0: So, have you? uh, My my next thing is going to be about the truth behind the Candyman legend, which started as a film and became an urban legend because the film just made that kind of mark, but um, is surprisingly based on some true shit.
1: So, have you? And also, the song doesn't. Help matters because <laughs> you can sing a song about the king.
0: You can, which uh, has
1: been around for a while. Though.
0: It has been. Now, have you? Um, that's so funny. It makes me mm-hmm. think. So, this is a totally ridiculous aside. But when I worked in a bookstore slash CD store for several years, a thousand years ago, when we still had bookstores and CD stores. There was a little woman. She was so sweet. She'd come in every week and she'd order certain things, uh, CDs, that we just didn't carry in stock because no one carried them in stock. So she'd have to get them from the distribution center or whatever. This this is a long time ago with brick and mortar stores. Just use your imaginations. But every time she came in, this this was the 90s. Every time she came in, whatever else she bought, she wanted to look and see if she can find, if she could find a version of the Candyman, which is a song from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the Gene Wilder film, and uh, if she could find a version of it sung by Sammy Davis Jr., <laughs> who does not sing it in the film. Uh, so it was like <laughs> it was Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis Jr.'s cover of Candyman, who can take a rainbow? You know the song, yeah. uh, or you should. Well. I could never find any records of it. I could never find that it even existed. I was convinced, and I try, I searched and searched. I used all of our databases, uh, everything I could possibly find. And every time she asked, has it been printed yet? Has anyone come out with it? Because she was convinced she'd heard it at some point in the 70s or 80s and wanted a copy. And I was like, they have never printed one. I cannot find it fucking anywhere. I've really tried. And every week she would ask,
1: every but you could week. You just search it on YouTube, and it's available right now.
0: Well, I never did. I've forgotten about this until I was on a road trip to a convention here in Texas. So I just drove to it and I stopped at uh, the Czech bakery, you know, the one. Yeah, uh, I do. And um, (laughs) while I was there, I will be goddamned, and this was just last year, I will be goddamned if while buying my kolaches... I did not hear on the fucking PA system, clear as day, Sammy Davis motherfucking junior, late and great, singing The Candyman and I like to lost my shit with everyone with me. I'm like, you don't understand. (laughs) She was right. Janice Burr was right.
1: (laughs) I just have to say that all I did was put into Google, uh, Sammy Davis, not even junior and Candyman and um, I'm what? sorry, I did, I did put in Junior, but instead of Sammy Davis Jr., I put in Sam Key Davis Jr., Candyman. <laughs> and it and still immediately came up. the video of him <sighs> singing comes up.
0: It is because of my time in retail prior to the internet that I feel like I could be the hermit. Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: I get that, too. But, I mean, isn't that crazy how much, like, it's just like, oh, it's oh this? it's insane.
0: It's insane how the internet has just telescoped years and years and years of history so that you can go and listen to a Mozart symphony and then go and listen to, you know, I did it all for the Nookie in the same hour. Like, it right. is, what a weird time we live in. And
1: you can take your computer and mix them together if you want it.
0: You can. It's crazy. It's a weird time and kind of fun. Uh, but anyway, I'm not here to talk yeah. about that. I'm here to talk about the Candyman, uh, the, hook, yes. the hooked, the hooked, the hooked hand supernatural killer who appears when you say his name. Now, my chief sources are two really good ones for this bit. Uh, one is for an article uh, for Insider written by Alicia Grauso, G-R-A-U-S-O. I hope I'm saying the name right. And an article also written for All That's Interesting by Morgan Dunn. Now, based on the 1985 short story by Clive Barker titled The Forbidden, which in turn was based on a short film he wrote and directed in 1978, Candyman. Uh, follows the story of Helen, who, while researching a grisly urban legend in a bad part of town, incurs the wrath of a vengeful supernatural entity. Now, there are Marked differences between the film and the original story, as one might expect. Uh, For starters, Barker describes the Candyman as jaundiced with waxy skin. His ethnicity is left to the imagination. That particular detail, along with his tragic backstory, would only enter popular consciousness after the film's relief, buffeted by Tony Todd's iconic portrayal of the title character. For the
1: record, he is so sweet.
0: He really is. Oh, he my really God. Is. He's such yeah. the greatest guy. Also, whereas the movie directed by Bernard Rose is set in Caprini Green, Chicago's infamous public housing project, Barker puts the action squarely in Liverpool's urban district to highlight his concerns about the suffocating British class system. Rose. Oh,
1: ex- Liverpool. Ex- Sorry. Mm,
0: I know. It was the last calm know. we did before the world burned. Um know. Rose extended those themes to include America's violent racial divide. Now, the grizzly hook hand and heralding bees are essential features from the original, but the conceit of summoning the entity by first saying his name five times in a mirror was the film's contribution. So, naturally, the two most obvious influences on Barker's original version and the film adaptation are The Hook and, of course, Bloody Mary. So let's talk about those for a moment. The hook for those of you who need a refresher goes something like this. A randy young couple is getting it on in their car, out in the woods, when suddenly a breaking news bulletin comes on the radio. Apparently a deranged serial killer has escaped from the nearby mental institution. There's always one. (laughs) Yeah. They Uh, they do that a
1: lot, apparently.
0: Unfortunately, says the reporter, "You'll or the the announcer, you'll know him when you see him. He has a hook hand. <laughs> now, why a criminally insane mental patient would be allowed to have a hook hand is never addressed. But you know,
1: he stole it on the way out. I
0: <laughs> guess he stole it from the meat locker in the cafeteria.
1: Yeah, it just um, happened to work with his whatever was on his hand before."
0: Now, the story comes in multiple varieties depending on your mileage, but it usually involves the girl being scared by a scraping sound and the horny boyfriend trying to convince her it's nothing. Now, she insists, and and finally they leave. He peels out angrily, uh, blue-balled, and drives away. Later, while dropping her off, the couple finds a hook hanging from the door handle. Dun-dun-dun! Now, I remember hearing that story for the first time around a campfire when I was in Cub Scouts, of all things. Yeah. And... um, Oh, man, the teller had to give us an adult. One of the scoutmasters had to give us a lot of context. I didn't know what parking was. I didn't know what thickets were, which was his word <laughs> for a forest. I was like, there's so much I have to learn today. Um, and because I learned so much in that story, it's stuck with me. <laughs> yeah.
1: Nice. nice. But
0: I believed it 100% because I was a kid and I was, you know, trusting an, an adult like a moron. Um <laughs> Now, it's widely accepted that the hook legends started to circulate among teenagers in the U.S. in the 1950s, becoming widespread by the end of the decade. But as with most urban legends, um, precise origins are difficult to pen down. It's not hard to see the tale's moral, though. Premarital sex equals death. That's been a- Certain death. Certain death. Now, the hook legend has its counterparts in real life, most notably the Texarkana Moonlight Murders of 1946 and the sexual assaults rampant in the Lover's Lane area of Palos Verdes, California, circa 1955. Uh, We shall have to do episodes about those, because especially the Texarkana killer, that was fucked up. Oh, my God. Mm. Yeah. Isolated locales popular with young couples seemed equally popular with serial killers looking to ply their trade off the grid, such as Houston's Lover's Lane, uh, around which there were murders in in 1990, or the Colonial Parkway murders in Virginia in the late 80s. Now, the other element of the Candyman story uh, is Bloody Mary. Now, arguably even better known than the hook is Bloody Mary, the persistent notion that by looking into a mirror in the dark and saying her name a certain number of times, she'll appear and... Probably kill you, scratch your eyes out, take you to the underworld, whatever. Um, I did
1: that when I was a kid. <laughs> so did I, with th- with two other girls, and we all got a rash at the same place on our arm. Oh, it was now, a little creepy.
0: Now, how many times her name must be said, and whether or not creepy accoutrements like candles or occult sacrifices need be involved differ from telling to telling, but the core themes have persisted unchanged for generations. Her origins uh, are, of course, shrouded in mystery. Some say she was a witch burned at the stake or hanged. Some modern interpretations have her as a young woman horrifically disfigured in a car accident. There are also a few real life women, however, that historians suggest the Bloody Mary legend could be influenced by. The first is Mary Tudor, uh, Mary I of England, a Catholic queen who put so many Protestants to death, it earned her the nickname Bloody Mary. There's also Elizabeth Bathory, a 16th-century Hungarian noblewoman who tortured and murdered, it's said, hundreds of peasant girls, as many as 600, between 1590 and 1610, earning among others the nickname "Countess of Blood." There's also she bathed
1: in their blood. It was mm-hmm. like, we need to do that one
0: right. <laughs> we really do. <laughs> yeah. She's she's a great one. Uh, Mary Worth, an accused in witch, and that she
1: was terrible.
0: <laughs> well, but there's also some evidence to suggest that the stories were made up. That she was real, but, like, she was the victim of propaganda by a rival uh, nobility. Uh, But it's still up in the air. But that's a different episode for a different Halloween. Uh, (laughs) Different different (laughs) October. Mary Worth is another candidate, an accused witch blamed for kidnapping young girls and put to death during the Salem witch trials. And another Mary Worth, who was a sadistic bitch in Illinois, who during the 1800s lured escaped slaves with promises of freedom only to torture and disfigure them. Now... But uh, the element of the mirror, here's what's fascinating. Italian researchers discovered in the 2000s that staring into a mirror in a dimly lit room for any length of for a certain length of time anyway, actually can cause hallucinations. One's reflection can seem to melt, distort, spin, etc. Figures such as savage, animalistic or otherworldly faces can float alongside your own. Explanations range from temporary disassociative identity disorder to unintentional self-hypnosis. Regardless, there is sound scientific basis for seeing strange apparitions in the mirror when you stare long enough and the lights are low. Uh, also, I, And I would be remiss without mentioning the folklore of La Llorona that exists in Spanish speaking yeah. culture. Which, which of course, has overlapping similarities to the Bloody Mary legend, despite a different story of origin. It's said that you can summon La Llorona, also known as the Weeping Woman or the Woman in White in America, by placing red candles in a darkened room of mirrors and chanting her name. La Llorona's story is more tragic than the rootless Bloody Mary, however, and it has existed in some form for centuries, as we know. While there are variations, the gist of it involves a uh, Mexican woman named Maria, who marries a rich man and, and has two children by him. Their relationship eventually deteriorates. Uh, He lavishes attention on the children and ignores her. One day she sees him in town with another woman and drowns her children in a fit of grief. She immediately realizes what she's done. The story goes and tries to save them, but it's too late now. She's cursed, spending the rest of her days as a restless spirit who wanders up and down near bodies of water and wails for her lost children. Now, most folklorists view her as an embodiment of grief, of the the wronged woman. Uh, Not so long ago, it was tragically common for mothers to lose their children in infancy, but the legend also captures the horror we feel about modern instances of mothers such as Uh, Andrea Yates murdering their children in cold blood. It's a perversity of human nature that we simply can't help but recoil from. Now, now these days, of course, we understand a little better the effects of postpartum depression, but centuries ago, our only explanation
1: was evil. But well, and also there's, just to add on to that for a second, um, there's also the dynamic of the A man who doesn't stand by his commitment and Mm -hmm. goes and leaves a woman for, you know, especially in some of the stories, too, for La Llorona, she was not married to him. And he marries someone else for money. So it's the story of trusting a man who does the Mm -hmm. wrong thing. Um, A woman is left with nothing but despair. And so what does she do with that despair? And a lot of times she becomes the villain and it's such yeah. a It's play the it's on... the it's
0: the Medea archetype, isn't it? The the the, the 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 Greek um tragic villain, heroine, whatever you want to call her, who, who
1: Medusa, uh, you yeah. know, the, yeah. the not the original telling, but the later telling is this yeah. is this is a woman who has been tr- truly abused. I mean Medusa, definitely. <laughs> well, Multiple it's also, ways. especially, but,
0: you know, for women until very recently, and in some cases still, when the man, uh, you know, in their lives abandons them, they're, they got nothing. They've got, they got nothing. nothing. They certainly don't have power to, to earn for themselves or whatever. I mean, they are cast aside. They become pariahs. And, right. are and as I can as, well tell you, oof, if a woman right.
1: is too loud about an injustice, she is villainized. God. That's.
0: Do you think you're going to go down in mythology one day as like, <laughs> the, I want, I want yours. i fucking want,
1: better. I hope
0: so. <laughs> the red-haired vixen who occasionally, if you listen in the dead of night in a parking garage all by yourself, <laughs> you can hear You'll the hear, sound. I wish a, wish a motherfucker, motherfucker would. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, But back to the (laughs) Candyman. Yes. Now, actor Tony Todd fleshed out the story for his character and based it on the darker side of America's troubled history. Now, in the movie's mythology, Candyman had been Daniel Robitaille in life, though the name wasn't given until the sequel. He was the son of a slave who became a successful shoemaker and grew up to be a painter and was one day commissioned to paint a portrait of Caroline Sullivan, a wealthy white woman. He and Caroline uh, began a forbidden romance. When Caroline got pregnant, her father grew enraged. He organized a lynch mob to kill Daniel. They severed, the hand that had dared touch a white woman and smothered his body in honey, drawing the swarm of bees that stung him to death. That's why, of course, bees attend his, his ghost when he appears in the mirror, right. to kill you. Now, melodramatic... Or to
1: heal you from some weird illness.
0: Right. Now, melodramatic, as that may seem... Right. <laughs> <Unwell>. uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Melodramatic as that may seem, its basis is all too real. Laws forbidding interracial relationships had been in effect since colonial times, particularly in the southern states where laws ratified and enforced the inferior status of people of color. Following the Civil War, the sudden influx of freed slaves fanned the flames of racial tension. To put it fucking mildly, when interracial relationships were discovered, angry white mobs almost always reacted violently, killing black men to, quote unquote, protect the purity of white women. The awful and ironic stereotype of black men as violent, lustful savages um, essentially served to protect well-to-do white families from having to acknowledge that their daughters, gasp, might enter into a relationship with a black man of their own free will. Right. Um,
1: well, and it also protected the white men from having to compete. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, now <laughs> fucking, fucking white people, or white men especially. Virginia in uh, 19 excuse me, not until the landmark case of Loving uh, v. Virginia in 1967 did interracial marriage become legal in the states, and
1: only in 2020 did lynching
0: become a federal crime.
1: Right. And, um, uh, 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 who is it that voted against it? Still,
0: oh um, shit, I don't know. Kentucky
1: uh, Senator Rand Paul.
0: Uh, uh, Rand, yeah, Rand Paul, fucking piece of shit. Like I just fucking piece of shit with a Surprised bad weave. me
1: that his neighbor punched him. I just, who would have thought?
0: Weird. Uh, mm. Now this, the following comes from an article written by Morgan Dunn. For all that is interesting, though, the events of Candyman may seem like they could never happen in real life. One story suggests otherwise the tragic murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy, a lonely, mentally ill resident of the Alba Homes on Chicago's south side. On the night of April 22, 1987, a terrified Ruthie called 911 to request help from the police. She told the dispatcher that someone in the apartment next door was trying to come through her bathroom mirror. They throwed the cabinet down, she said, confusing the dispatcher, who thought she must be crazy. What the dispatcher didn't know is that McCoy was right. Narrow passages between apartments allow maintenance workers easy access, but they also became a popular way for burglars to break in by pushing the bathroom cabinet out of the wall. And although a neighbor reported gunshots coming from McCoy's apartment, police chose not to break down the door due to the risk of being sued by residents had they done so. When a a building superintendent finally drilled the lock two days later, he discovered McCoy's body face down on the floor, shot four times. Now, the movie contains several elements of this sad tale. Candyman's first confirmed victim is named Ruthie Jean, a Cabrini-Green resident murdered by someone who came through her bathroom mirror. Like Ruthie McCoy, neighbors, including the coincidentally named Anne Marie McCoy, saw Ruthie Jean as, quote, crazy. And like Ruthie McCoy, Ruthie Jean called the police only to die alone and without help. Now, no one is quite sure how the details of McCoy's murder ended up in the movie. It's possible that director Bernard Rose learned of McCoy's murder after deciding to shoot his movie in Chicago. It's also been suggested that John Malkovich had an interest in making a movie about the story and shared the details with Rose. What's known for certain is that her death was far from unusual in Chicago's public housing. Right. So those Gosh, are sort if, of the uh, various only ingredients. Gosh, if the
1: police had a warrant, they could have gone in and killed her themselves. <laughs>
0: oh god Pickers. and that's the thing like and that's that's one of the elements of the the film that uh, and the the story in general that i've always found so compelling is that it really is an examination of what you know the underprivileged go through and how mm. you know they're not believed and thought to be crazy and you know and how you know the vengeful spirit is you know Kind of one of their own, but who's condemned to just kill all the time because he's, right. he's been driven insane by the way he died. It's 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 a really really it's good movie. It, it's terrible. it's um, yeah, but the, um, it's the fact that the it's movie, yeah yeah the, yeah the movie is great. But the it, the fact terrible. is, when you're watching it, and it's good, you should watch. It's a great Halloween watch, especially. You have to remember it's based on things that are all too fucking real, that are mm-hmm. so much more terrifying than the idea of a supernatural killer. Like who needs. <laughs> <laughs> who needs who needs a supernatural killer when <laughs> reality right? is, when is reality is
1: awful enough. Yeah, it's a su- supernatural excuses, right? I'm surprised they're not using those more. Right. Um uh, Yeah. Uh, and uh. my previous statement, to be clear, is a sarcasm, in case somebody thought, Oh yeah, she's gonna tell in the cops they need to kill people. That's not what I'm it's, saying. No,
0: and you That's fucking damn I'm well saying. know it. <laughs>
1: uh, and you know it. And you know it. Um yeah. So yeah. yeah. Good so that, Good
0: that's that's the truth behind or some of the elements of truth behind. Uh, I was, you know, of course, I knew all the other elements. I wasn't aware of the the, the murder of Ruthie Ann McCoy. I'd never heard that story before. Yeah. But the fact that that they decided to make that in and that was, I mean, clearly because the the whole mirror element and saying his name five times in the mirror and the fact that he would come through the mirror to kill you was not an element of the original story. So I think that incident really really must have informed Bernard Rose. I mean, in my movie, that's what informed the decision to um, to add that element to the Candyman legend, which is so effective in the movie.
1: Right, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, last story.
0: Okay, I'm ready, I'm ready.
1: The body under the bed. Ooh. So, in this urban legend, we hear of a couple or an individual, there's all kinds of different versions of this story, who is staying at a hotel. When they walk in the room, they notice a terrible smell. They try to air it out, but nothing works. So they call the front desk and ask for a different room. No such luck. There are no rooms available. Not at that hotel, not at any hotel in the area. The hotel guest gives up and decides to tough it out and stay the night. By morning, they've gotten little sleep and are fairly irritated with the situation. The smell, this horrible smell, seems to be coming from the bed. The hotel guest pulls the bedding off and finds nothing. So they move the mattress over, and underneath the mattress, they find the rotting corpse of a woman. Apparently, her murderer had hidden her body under the mattress and fled. Uh. This urban legend is also visited in four rooms.
0: It is. (laughs) When a
1: body is found under the mattress the discovery of which causes Tim Roth to instantly projectile vomit in a scene that will never not make me cry with laughter. It's so, it funny. Is so instantaneous and real. <laughs> and it, it cracks me up every time. He it's is really... not red. He does not know he's going to vomit in that moment. And it kills... Oh and he's God, like vomiting so while funny. he's
0: talking. It's so...
1: Yeah. Just... <laughs> 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 if... You should just watch Four Rooms for that. Yeah, See. really. really. Uh, it's, it's really intense. So... Um, So, what's the truth behind this one? What gives this urban legend its chills down the spine gruesomeness is the body being found only after an unsuspecting traveler spends the night sleeping above it. There are a lot of stories of bodies being found in mattresses. That is just something that's pretty common, actually, uh, considering, (laughs) but here are some. That have that whole sleeping above a dead body element to really make you feel safe when you're out of town. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm doing this for us. All right, maybe by the time we do conventions again, we'll forget about.
0: I'm we won't. About. We okay. won't. And I still look for your, your the episode where you gave me advice on how to look for you know to see if anyone had ever yeah. been murdered in my room before. I'm like, no, nah, I can't unsee that. So I'm always looking right. for shit.
1: Bullet holes. I'm always looking for bullet holes. Um. One of the oldest smelly body left under the bed sightings comes from 1982. Richard Kuklinski, Daniel Deppner, and Gary Smith often teamed together to run auto theft scams. Kuklinski, also known as the Iceman, the Polak, the the devil himself, (laughs) you know, the mob hitman who claimed to have killed anywhere from 100 to 250 men, Mm -hmm. that, Kuklinski... Uh, the number is probably exaggerated, but he was for sure a serial killer and gruesome murderer and just, like, fucking evil. Right. <laughs> just horrible. Horrible. Oh, my God. Um, well, Mr. Iceman and Deppner decided to kill Smith, and they accomplished this by feeding him a cyanide-laced hamburger in a motel room in North Bergen or Bergen, I don't know, New Jersey. Kuklinski finished off Smith by strangling him while watching Smith die of poisoning because it took too long. God. Yeah. Uh, Kuklinski, let's see. Okay. It must have so, been so hard for him. Yeah, right, wasn't it? <laughs> Kuklinski and Dupner uh, stuffed Smith's body under the bed and left it there. It was found four days later on December twenty seventh, 1982. During the intervening four days, the room had been rented to others each night. Guests had wrinkled their noses at the smell but no one thought to look under the bed. Oh. In Rosedale, Maryland, in 1987, an <laughs> unidentified man died of a drug overdose after one of the 34 balloons of heroin he swallowed burst.
0: <laughs> oh, my God.
1: That'll do it. That'll do it. The partner stashed the corpse under their motel bed, then split. Three days later, the family, the room was uh, next. The Wait, hold on. Yeah, the family the room was next rented to complained about the odor, and this led to the body's discovery.
0: I mean, the squeaky <laughs> I mean, wheel gets the grease. Am I right?
1: Yeah, right. I'm also like, but his, the guy with him probably knew there were 33 balloons of heroin still in there. I'm surprised he didn't like get them.
0: Right? But I, um, who knows? Who I mean, knows? In the movie, knows. he
1: would have. He, it would have been disgusting. That that would have been the whole premise of,
0: of the movie is like trying to get those. Yeah. He would have been the villain. But
1: maybe he didn't know how many had, it had burst. He was like, what if I open? It's just all burst. Uh <laughs> In Rosedale, Maryland, in 1987, an unidentified man died of a drug—oh, I just read that one. Sorry. Um, (laughs) In a Mineola, New York motel in 1988, a body turned up in a box spring. The remains of 29-year-old Mary Jean de Oliveira, Oliveira, Oliveira were found at the Oceanside Motel. Again, the body was discovered days later and only after other patrons complained about the smell. At least two other guests unknowingly cohabited with the body before it was found, and at least one guest refused to stay in that room because of the smell. Good on them.
0: Yeah, I would be that guy. I'd be like, I don't know what the fuck. I'd be like, there's a body under the bed. There must be. There's no other explanation for the smell. Right,
1: right. In Virginia, in 1989, Jerry Lee Dunbar disposed of the remains of two victims this way, 27-year-old Deirdre Smith, who was discovered in May under the floor of a motel on Route 1, and 29-year-old Marilyn Graham, who turned up in June under a bed in the Alexandria Econo Lodge. In Smith's case, the killer first kept her body partially hidden under his bed for two days, then subsequently placed it in the crawl space under the carpeted floor. Her presence seemingly didn't bother him because he didn't move out of that room until three or four weeks later. Ugh. Both girls' bodies were eventually found after other guests complained about the stink. <sighs> There were two stashed and smelly body cases in Florida in 1994. In August 1994, in Fort Lauderdale, hotel staff discovered the body of 47-year-old Brian Gregory tucked under a platform bed. Though the staff had themselves noticed the strange smell for days, they only set about looking for its source after a German couple spent the night in that room and afterwards complained about the odor. In March of 1994, the the body of 24-year-old Josefina Martinez was found underneath a bed at the Traveler's Hotel near Miami International Airport. Again, the discovery was prompted by an aggrieved German tourist upset about a foul odor in his room. A lot of times, the urban legend has a German couple or German person involved, and it's believed it's because of these two specific stories, because they happened very close together.
0: Yeah. Huh. In July of
1: 1996, a woman's body was found under a mattress in the Colorado Boulevard Travel Lodge in Pasadena, California. Apparently, the motel staff discovered her 10 days after her demise and only after guests had complained for several days of a foul odor coming from that room. On June 10, 1999, the rapidly decomposing remains of 64-year-old Saul Hernandez were discovered inside the bed in room 112 at the Burgundy Motor Inn. In Atlantic City, New Jersey, a German couple had spent the a German couple again had spent the night. It's <laughs> a lot of Germans over. They can sniff yeah.
0: out those bodies. Let me tell you,
1: were the just luck of the draw. <laughs> uh, German couple had spent the night sleeping over Hernandez's remains, and it was their complaint to the manager about the smell in their room, which led to this discovery of the corpse on July tenth, two thousand three. A man checked into the Capri Motel just east of downtown Kansas City and began complaining about a foul odor in his room. Management told him nothing could be done about the problem, and he spent three nights in his room before checking out because he could no longer stand the smell. When the cleaning staff came in to make up the room on the 13th, they lifted the mattress and underneath found a man's body in a and in an advanced stage of decomposition that's a that's hard an an advanced, in an stage, advanced of decomposition.
0: stage of decomposition oh, la, 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 la.
1: and then we have the case of Sony millbrook of Memphis Ten- Tennessee oh, who no. was reported missing on January 27th 2010 after she failed to pick up her children from school 47 days later, on March 15th, homicide investigators were called to the room of a Budget Inn's motel where Millbrook had been living just prior to her disappearance, her body having just been discovered inside the frame of the bed there, even though the room had reportedly been cleaned and rented several times since her disappearance, almost seven weeks earlier.
0: Uh,
1: I am uh, sure there's more than that at this point, but you get the idea. If you smell something suspicious in a hotel, maybe ask for a different room.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or just be like, hey, I'm pretty sure housekeeping has not been in here for a while because this would surely bother them.
1: Trust your nose. It's important. And so that's the body under the the mattress. (sighs) Urban legend. (sighs) So there you have it. I
0: love it. I love it. Oh, yeah. my God. Thank you. Thank you for taking us on that stomach-turning journey. You're welcome. I love your stories. I love your religions. Out the and ne- yeah. next week, what is it next week? Superstitions we're doing next week, yes? Superstitions week. Sweet. Yeah, very superstitious.
1: Very superstitious. Uh, Yeah, that's right. So right if you know that we're world. doing superstitions, send us messages about superstitions. Yeah. Um, That you have. Uh, 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 so, Yeah. Yeah, ghoulintentions.com. Send your send your yes. stories to ghoulintentions.com. <laughs> um, I was like, what am I talking about? What am right. I doing?
0: Body in the uh, Oh, yes. Okay. We
1: will not be having a ghosticles this weekend. No. Uh, we got a lot of different things going on this got weekend. A lot and both you and Matt are not able to record it. So we yeah. are just going to take another Sorry. little break. It's
0: day. my fault, everyone. Well, it's my not fault. a
1: break day, but we're not do- we're not going to be
0: recording. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a break. Uh, yeah, we're not breaking. It's just, a, yeah. yeah. Oh.
1: So uh, we'll be with you in spirit.
0: Uh, on uh, moving
1: uh, journey. I see what you did um, there. <laughs> so, yes. So keep that in mind. Um, but uh, go to ghoulintentions.com again. Um, we have some really exciting things coming up for Halloween. We, we have do. a commercial about it now, so you should have heard that already. Yes. Stay safe.
0: Stay sane. And remember, it's, it's okay, okay to sleep to with the, the lights, lights on. on. Unless you smell something and then go tell housekeeping. You
1: want a different room.